If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to open to Acts chapter 5. We're going to look there today. You know, we all learn sooner or later that things are not always as they seem. Sometimes what we think is bad news is really good news in disguise. And there were two friends, these two women, and they were catching up. They hadn't seen each other in quite a while. And, and the first woman said, God, I just got married. And her friend said, oh, that's good news. And she said, no, it's bad news. He's ugly. And her friend said, oh, that's bad news. And she said, no, it's good news because he's rich. And her friend said, oh, that's good news. She said, no, it's bad news. He only spends money on what he wants. She said, well, that's bad news. And she said, no, no, it's good news because he built us a beautiful home. And her friend said, well, that's good news. She said, no, it's bad news. It burned to the ground. And she said, well, that is bad news. She said, no, it's good news. He was in it. And her friend said, that's bad news. And she said, no, it's good news. He left everything to me. <laughs> see, as we're going to see today, what appears to be a bad thing really is a good thing. Because, you know, as we, we study the early church in the book of Acts, and, and you read about what they did, I sometimes wonder, am I reading bad news or good news? And what appeared to be bad news often turns out to be good. We're in the series of messages from the book of Acts, and, and we see the picture of the early church, the way it ought to be, a church that is seeking God and serving others and sharing Jesus. And as we come to this fifth chapter, we watch the fire burning in the early church. I mean, some amazing things are happening. Acts 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Thousands of people are leaving darkness of unbelief and coming to the light of salvation. People from all walks of life are, are leaving the deadness of religion for the life found in following Jesus. No condition is helpless. No diagnosis terminal. No disease incurable. I mean, best of all, no HMOs, right? No pre-qualifying for insurance. That's such good news. But good news sometimes brings bad news. Verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Jealousy rears its ugly head. I mean, even though Jesus is a treasure to the people, he is a threat to the religious authorities. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's ruining everything for them. I mean, the very man that they crucified two months earlier is now more popular than he has ever been. And Jesus is driving them crazy. And so if killing the master didn't work, maybe incarcerating the messengers will. And so the apostles are arrested and thrown in prison. Bad news, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to be in jail. But the bad news brings good news. Verse 19. 
But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared and opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. Tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple court, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find him there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple court teaching the people. It's becoming a nightmare for them, right? They, they couldn't keep Jesus in the grave, and now they can't keep the disciples in jail. As Yogi Berra once said, it's just deja vu all over again. I mean, two months earlier, these Jewish leaders just knew that by nailing Jesus to the cross, that would nail the door shut on what was to become known as Christianity before it ever even got off the ground. But what they thought was water was actually kerosene because Jesus came back from the dead and he appeared to the disciples and he gave them his Holy Spirit and their spiritual testosterone is off the charts. Now they are burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And they are setting Jerusalem on fire with their preaching. Once again, though, looks like good news for the church. But reality check, bad news. Verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See, remember, this was the same group that had Jesus crucified just two months earlier. And these disciples know that they could now be next. They could be crucified. And as much as they love Jesus, that this crowd that they're in front of hates Jesus. In fact, did you notice? In verse 28, they can't even bring themselves to say the name Jesus. It says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And nothing's changed in 2,000 years, has it? I mean, you can talk about God. You can talk about a higher power, the man upstairs, and nobody really says a word, but... But you begin to talk about Jesus, and everything hits the fan. Looks like bad news for the apostles, right? But you guessed it, that bad news leads to good news. Verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, again, Peter realizes it's just another God-given opportunity to talk about Jesus to people that normally would neither give him an audience nor an ear. And so he takes it. And in about 20 seconds, he tells them everything they need to know about Jesus, but never asked. 
He covers every base, right? First base, crucifixion. You nailed Jesus to the tree. You crucified the Son of God. Second base, resurrection. But you did him and us a big favor by crucifying him so that by coming back from the dead, he could prove to you and to us he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the universe. Third base, ascension. This Jesus left and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, which, as you know, is a seat reserved only for God's Messiah. And home plate, salvation. And this Jesus is the only one that can give anybody and everybody the two things that are necessary to be right with God. Repentance and forgiveness. See, in other words, in 20 seconds, Peter preached the gospel what we would call good news. But that good news leads to bad news. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They were furious. That that word furious really doesn't do justice. The word literally means cut in half. It refers to someone that is so angry that the rage is about to split them in half and boil over. I mean, this group is so angry that they're going to skip the trial, they're going to even skip the crucifixion, and they're just going to kill them right then and there on the spot. (laughs) Bad news, right? But bad news leads to good news. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So who is Gamaliel? He is this... Pharisee, known as one of the most highly revered, greatly respected Bible scholars in his day. I mean, you could call him the dean of the college. Right? Later on, the Apostle Paul proudly claims he studied at the feet of Gamaliel because nobody knew more about the Jewish law than he did. To put it another way, he was kind of like Watson, the computer from Jeopardy. He was definitely smarter than a fifth grader. And his advice is simple. He talks about these two other men that tried to cause an uprising against Judaism and the Romans had them both killed. And he said, you know, we didn't have to take care of them and we don't have to take care of these men either. The Romans will do it for us. And he said, besides, one of two things is true. Either this movement is of man or it's of God. If it's of man, it's not going to come to anything. And if it's of God, you can't do anything. As a matter of fact, you'll wind up opposing God, and you don't want to do that. See, basically what he was saying was this. Only an act of God will keep this movement alive and get it off the ground. And he was right. It was an act of God that raised Jesus from the dead. 
It was an act of God that the church is still alive and well today. So they take his advice. They let the apostles go. Good news. Well, (laughs) bad news. Verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Flogging is not a good thing. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, but if you did, you saw what flogging looked like. Basically, they took the apostles out and they stripped them naked and they beat them with these whips that had pieces of glass and metal and sharp edges on the end. And they would do it 39 times, literally within an inch of their lives. In fact, many people died from being flogged. Now, why 39 times? Well, there was this law that said you you couldn't beat someone more than 40 times because if you did, if you beat them 41 times, that was cruel and inhumane, and then you could be beaten. So to be safe, it was always 40 minus 1 or 39 times, just in case they miscounted. The apostles were beaten, and they left that place permanently scarred. Every time they had to take off their robe, there was this gruesome reminder of the price that they paid for serving Jesus, for sharing Jesus. Bad news. Nope. Good news. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Let me read that again. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let that verse sink in for a moment. I mean, did they have a pity party? No. Did they say, well, you know, maybe discretion is the better part of valor? No. No. Did they say, if I want to live to a ripe old age and see my grandkids, I I should probably keep my mouth shut? No. But you know, their reaction never ceases to make me both amazed and a bit ashamed. They rejoiced they were worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. And they went right back to doing the very thing that got them beaten to begin with. So here's how this story relates to to us and our culture and our country today. Because it's really hard for us to relate to what we just read, right? We live in America. We live in the most religiously free country in the world. I mean, we can stand up at anywhere, at any place, at any time and talk about Jesus. And we don't have to fear the the kind of persecution, the kind of of incarceration or, or, or death, We have very little reason to fear serving Jesus and sharing Jesus. And yet, there's a lot more fear than there is courage today. See, have you ever wondered why it is that when the heat of persecution is hottest on the church, the fire of the church's witness seems to burn brightest? I kind of think that our blessings have robbed us of our boldness. There was this missionary talking to a Romanian believer and he had just immigrated to the United States. And he asked him, he said, why the church in Romania is so strong under this communist domination 
and persecution and the Church of America seems to have grown weak. This is what the Romanian said. He said, in Romania, Satan is like a, a roaring lion. He attempts to intimidate Christians with persecution and fear. But in America, Satan is like an angel of the light and he uses comfort and complacency. He said, I find it much more difficult to deal with an angel of light than I do a roaring lion. So let me ask you, what is it that made these disciples so bold? What was it that gave them the ability to stand up when they were told to sit down? To speak up when they were told to shut up? What is it that can give us the boldness that we need today to be proactive in trying to reach people for Christ? See, I think it goes back to what the disciples realized was true about Jesus. What, what I want us to remember is true about Jesus. Just, just three quick things. First, we need to remember who Jesus is. He is our prince and our savior, according to verse 31. That word prince was a word used in ancient Greek mythology. It was often used for Hercules more than any other Greek figure because Hercules was seen as the number one hero of the Greeks. He was strong enough to defeat any foe, powerful enough to take down any enemy. But there's a couple differences. Hercules was a myth. Jesus is real. Hercules died and stayed dead. Jesus came back from the dead and is still alive. But he's more than just a, a hero. He's also a savior. That was a very familiar word to these Jewish people. It was a word that was used for physicians, people who could save people's lives, philosophers, people that solved people's problems, and statesmen, people who could send peace. And Jesus does all three. So remember who Jesus is. Also remember where he lives. And Jesus left this planet and he went back to heaven. And he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is God's right hand man. See, when a person of high rank sets someone at their right hand, it was their way of saying, this person is my equal. He has equal rank and equal authority. In other words, Jesus isn't just someone who died on the cross. He's not even just someone who came back from the grave. He's God, who is in absolute control of the universe. Remember where he lives. And finally, remember what he does. Because he gives the two things that are necessary for us to be right with God. To be able to become what we need to be and do what we need to do. He gives us repentance and he gives us forgiveness of sins. So the next time you get the opportunity to stand up for Christ and to speak for Christ and the world tries to intimidate you into sitting down and shutting up, remember who he is. Remember where he lives. And remember what Jesus does. It's why whether you're a believer in Christ or not, you have to make the same decision the disciples made when they said, we must obey God rather than men. What it all comes down to. Who are you going to obey? I mean, if you're not a believer, you have to decide for yourself, is Jesus dead or is he alive? Was he just a man or is he truly the son of God? 
Am I going to keep living my life how I want? Or am I going to live my life for him? And if you're a believer, you have to decide. Are you going to listen to this world that tells you to sit down and shut up? Or are you going to listen to God who tells you to stand up and speak up? God never intended for the Christian life to be a parking lot. He meant it to be a launching pad. And when you have this burning love for Jesus, you can't help but let people feel the heat and see the light. Will they discriminate against you? Yeah. Will they try to intimidate you? Probably. Will they try to separate you? Yeah. But when they do, rejoice. Rejoice that you are counted worthy to suffer for the one whose name is above every name. Jesus. So have you made that decision? Are you following God? Or are you following man? Maybe this morning, the first step is in following God and surrendering your life to him. If that's what you've decided, I invite you to come. 